And in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, God says this, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or let the strong man boast of his strength, or let the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. As J.I. Packer observes, the luster, the gleam, the treasure of eternal life is not so much in its duration as it is in its subject. For this is eternal life, according to John 17, verse 3, knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. A life worth living is lived for this purpose, to know God and to love him with every fiber of who we are. It is better then to die anonymously in the knowledge of God than it is to live in the vapor trail of human fame. The goal of the gospel is that we should trade the artificial glory of this life for a glory that endures in the knowledge of the holy. We are called to put ourselves off that we may take on Christ. We are called to be less like portraits and more like mirrors. Mirrors that delight in reflecting the supreme beauty of our God and his image and to make him known to others. And to do this without the distortion of sin. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Heaven will be a place where we will know God, and he will know us. And that's the sort of knowledge that satisfies and gives life true significance and satisfaction. It's a sort of knowledge that drove Paul to minister the way that he did in his apostleship. And that's what we see this morning in our passage today. So with that, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading uh, just a few verses. Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Then after three years, Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, Paul wrote these words as an answer to certain charges that were being leveled to him by these men who had come into the churches of Galatia and were speaking against Paul and saying that he actually preached a distorted gospel, a gospel that had been uh, changed, modified in an effort to please men and to appeal to Gentile sensibilities. In verse 10, Paul says that his life is oriented around one purpose, the pleasure of his master, Jesus Christ. So the arguments of these men who were troubling the church, uh, even, even despite the fact that these churches knew Paul, it's apparent that they were finding traction 
with the Galatians. And so Paul moves through in this letter recounting the details of his early ministry to, in an effort to prove the authenticity, the authenticity of his office and to prove the authenticity of his message. So in verses 11 through 17, as we looked at last week, we saw, see that Paul declares that he actually received this gospel and his commission to serve as an apostle from Jesus Christ himself, who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Paul's authority didn't come from the apostles who were before him. He wasn't elected to this position. He didn't arrive at this message through anyone's teaching or through anyone's reason. Instead, we're told in verse 15 that when God, who had set Paul apart even before he was born, called him by his grace and revealed his son to him, Paul was changed. He was born again. And then he set about doing the work that had been appointed to him by God, preaching the gospel to the nations, including the Galatians themselves. Well, Paul did this not so much... Um, he, he wrote this not so much because he was afraid that his influence with the Galatians was slipping, but rather he was afraid that they were abandoning the gospel of grace that was first preached to them for a false gospel that was leading them into enslavement under the Mosaic law. So he's concerned for their souls. And more than that, he's even, he's even more concerned about the glory of Christ. And so while Paul is not keen on bragging on himself or trying to build up his, rep, his own reputation, he's willing to go into the details of his early ministry to show them that he did indeed receive this message and his authority to, to serve as an apostle independently from the apostles who were in Jerusalem. Though it was, we see in uh, chapter 2, that it was ratified them with, by them when he met with them a few years later. Now, reading through Paul's account of the early years of his ministry in the, the area that's north of Israel, I'm struck with the way Paul seems to glory in his anonymity. If Paul were seeking the praise of men the way these false teachers were saying he was, we would expect him to take on a different tone. But as it is, as we read this passage, Paul actually rejoices in the fact that in the early years of his ministry, no one knew who he was. No one knew him by name. The joy Paul felt in seeing the name of Jesus glorified at the expense of his own shows us how true it is that it is better to know God than it is to be famous. Most of us, this is good news for us, right? Because most of us will never have our name printed in a Christian magazine. Most of us won't publish a best-selling book. If you're on track to sell a best-selling book, go ahead. I'm, this is not saying that. But the, re the reality is that most of us will remain anonymous, known to our families, known to our neighbors, known to our church, known, uh, known maybe by some missionaries across the world. But the reality is that the world won't know our name. The world won't even know that we exist. And that's okay. And I think Paul demonstrates in these words that there is glory in anonymity. There is glory in not being known when it results in Christ being known. Because the thing that makes life worth living is knowing God and making him known to others. So as we lose ourselves in the fame of Christ, we find a glory that doesn't fade, and that then gives us the strength to live the way he has called us. So the main idea of this sermon and the main idea of this passage is, is instruction from Paul on how to glory in being anonymous. 
purpose of this message is to learn how to glory in being not known. And we have three points, three ways we can glory in the anonymous. First of all, we're called to be happy to stand alone. Be happy to stand alone. Second, be happy to remain anonymous. Be happy to remain anonymous. Lastly, be happy to glory in God. Be happy to glory in God. Well, Paul preached a message that he had received, uh, not from men. This is not man's gospel. He did not receive it uh, uh, through men either. He wasn't taught in a seminary. But he preached a message he had received from God through Christ. He's, he's made that the banner statement of his testimony to the Galatians of why they can trust him. His service as an apostle was oriented around one big goal, to make Christ famous everywhere. So Paul was willing to embrace insult, injury, and even death if it meant making much of the glory of his king. Now this is what faithful servants do. They treasure the pleasure of their master over how others see them or even treat them. Paul knew Christ. He was radically changed by him. He became Christ's disciple, and he was commissioned to speak this message to the nations. As Paul tells us about how he plunged into the ministry he was called to do, how he preached the message of the gospel of God's grace to the nations, it's really striking to consider that he did this without stopping to get official approval from anyone else. I don't know about you, but I like to know that I'm in the right, and I feel a whole lot better declaring something is true when someone else has also declared that. Paul didn't wait. He went. Paul says, I didn't consult with anyone about this, uh, nor, did I go, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to meet with those who were apostles before me. Instead, he tells us um, there in verse 17 that he went away into Arabia and then returned to the city of Damascus. Well, Paul ministered as an apostle, preaching the gospel there for three years before he ever went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, uh, which is used, Paul's preferred way of speaking about Peter. In, verse eight, in the second part of verse 18, Paul tells us that he was only there for 15 days, so just over two weeks. And while he was there, he didn't see any of the other apostles except for James, who was Jesus' brother, after which he went on to Syria and Cilicia. Now, left to their own, these details seem pretty insignificant. Actually, one of the commentaries I was reading said this may be the least theological part of the book of Galatians. <laughs> but there is a purpose for this. And we see that purpose when we, when we remember that the situation going on in Galatia had to do with Paul's ministry and his authority. The false teachers who had come into these churches were saying that Paul got the gospel wrong, that he watered it down, and that he was seeking the praise of men, leaving out requirements of the law, which they said were necessary to have peace with God. Paul's answer for these agitators is that he received this message supernaturally from God himself when Jesus had revealed himself on the road to Damascus. And therefore, Paul says his message is trustworthy because it wasn't man's message. It was God's gospel. And it's only through this gospel that we can have hope to be delivered from, from our sins. Now, we don't have the things that these, we don't have transcripts of, we don't even know who these men were that were accusing Paul of doing this. Uh, we don't have their writings. So it's hard to say exactly what they were saying about Paul. But judging from Paul's response in this letter, they were apparently saying that his authority was dependent on the apostles in Jerusalem. 
They were also likely saying that Paul had derived his message from them, that he had distorted it and corrupted it and left out essential components to try to make it more appealing to Gentile sensibilities. So Paul, as he's addressing this, focuses on the independence of his message and on the independence of his commission so that he can then defend the authenticity of the gospel he preached. He preached and he ministered with confidence and with boldness, not because he'd been commissioned by a council or because he had a diploma up on his wall, uh, but because he had received this message and this calling from God himself. We have to credit Paul's boldness to the grace of God as it worked in him. Paul had come to know Jesus. He had come to treasure his work as the crucified and risen Messiah, which is a huge step for a Jew like Paul. His knowledge of God through Christ made him willing to stand alone. This is what made him willing to write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God is the one who called Paul. God is the one who opened Paul's eyes to the truth. God is the one who gave Peter a heartbeat for the fame of Jesus. God is the one who equipped Paul to see the power of God in the cross of Christ and who instilled in Paul a passion to see that gospel go to the nations. Finally, Paul, God was the one who sent Paul to the Galatians themselves where he preached this message to them so that they too could know the love of Christ in the saving grace of God. Paul was willing to stand alone on this message of grace which he had received because he knew God and because he had experienced the grace of, of God in Christ. There was one motivating factor in Paul's life, one engine that drove him. It wasn't to be recognized by other people. It wasn't to receive commendations from the apostles. It, wasn't, uh, it, it was simply to preach this gospel of grace and to exalt Jesus as the crucified Messiah. The authenticity of Paul's ministry and his message led him to the conviction that it, even if no one else came with him, Paul was going to follow Christ. Now, there are two things we need to consider about Paul's bold independence before we press on to our next point. First, we need to realize that we can easily misread Paul and his purpose of emphasizing how independent he was to think that Paul didn't care about what the other apostles thought. Paul preached what he had received from God through Christ, but that didn't mean he thought himself above or, uh, or above the accountability of the other apostles or that he didn't value their authority. As we'll see next week in chapter 2, Paul traveled to Jerusalem later and then he laid the gospel he had been preaching out to those other apostles where he said, and, and, and for the reason, the purpose he says, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Meaning that he presented this, this same gospel of grace to the apostles there in Jerusalem which he had been preaching to the Gentiles, to make sure that this was the same gospel that they preached and had received themselves. So while Paul received this message independently from them, he didn't think of himself as above, their, above accountability. And as we will see, 
uh, when the apostles heard of the gospel that Paul was preaching, they gave their approval. They ratified what he said. They said, yes, this is a message of grace. And all they did is they urged him on to continue doing the work. Faith in Christ, faith in the gospel of God's grace, is a matter of an individual relationship with God. Not one person has ever been saved by the faith of their parents or the faith of their spouse or the faith of their children. Certainly, God uses the witness of parents, wives, husbands, children, grandparents, neighbors, and anyone who faithfully shares the gospel with those who are around them. He uses that as a means of grace. But the faith of one person is not sufficient to credit salvation to another. If you would be saved, if you would know Christ, you must follow him yourself. It doesn't matter who your parents are or where you're from, whether or not your dad was a deacon or your grandmother sang in the choir. We are brought into this covenant of grace through faith in Christ alone. That is why we as a church don't practice infant baptism. And that is why we do not vote members into this fellowship uh, as family units. We vote them in individually as a testimony of their individual faith. Even so, we recognize as a church that we bear a responsibility towards one another as members of the body of Christ who have been put in each other's lives to provide each other with accountability, to encourage each other in this walk. We're called to, to be like Barnabas who encouraged Paul and pressed on him to continue on. We're called to be unified in one faith, in one Savior, having received one baptism in the hope of one heaven before one throne. If we know Christ in his beauty, the way we're called to, we will be compelled to say, as the song goes, though none go with me, I still will follow. And we will also be compelled to say, because Christ loves his bride, so do I. And I will, we will treasure each other as a result because of the individual faith that unites us together as one people. The second thing we want to recognize here is that even as we share in the fellowship of faith as one church, we must be resolved to stand on this gospel of grace, even if it means we have to stand alone. The gospel of grace in Christ, the gospel of the cross of Christ, is not a popular message. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's true. We must be so satisfied in Jesus' promise to tell us when he says that wherever we go, he goes with us, that we're willing to go to the place he calls us, even if that means that we go by ourselves. If our family deserts us, we are not alone. If our nation hates us, we are not alone. If our government prosecutes us, we are not alone. If we are forced to stand trial, we are not alone because he is with us, and that is enough. Paul counted knowing Christ above every earthly treasure. He counted the joy of knowing Christ above anything he could ever suffer. And when he went on trial for this message, and he tells Timothy, his child in the faith, how his friends deserted him. But then he says this, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that the gospel, the message, might be proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The only way you can say that, 
The only way you can say things like that is if you've really tasted of the sweetness of the grace of Christ. And there will be days, when even if you have people in your life, you will feel alone. It is hard to swim upstream. But the grace of Christ is stronger. And the message of this grace is more powerful. And I believe that it is able to make us stand even as it made Paul himself stand. Christ will not soon abandon the people he shed his own precious blood for. And that is a great encouragement to our souls in whatever season we find ourselves in. So we must be happy to stand alone because Christ stands with us. Second, we must be happy to remain anonymous. It's hard to imagine that there was a time in history when the church didn't know who Paul was. But in verses 22 and 23, he says that at the time when he left Cephas, or Peter, and James, who would later become the primary leader in the church of Jerusalem, he says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing uh, it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Now, Paul doesn't say why, after three years of ministry, he went up to visit Peter and James. Um, C.H. Dodd remarks that while he was there, we may presume that they didn't spend their time talking about the weather. It would have truly been something to listen to the conversation these two great pillars of the Christian faith had with each other. Who wouldn't want to be a fly on the wall when that was going on? Peter, who walked with Christ during his earthly ministry, Paul, who met Christ on the road to Damascus, each of them took a different road, but they both had one common faith in one Savior. And though they were assigned to gospel ministry in different places, they were both committed to one goal, preaching the glory of Christ in this gospel of salvation. I'm sure that Paul was eager to hear more about what it had been like to walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry, to listen to him, to see his miracles, to watch him suffer on the cross, to, to, to even see the empty tomb. Peter, on the other hand, must have been eager to hear about how Jesus had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he would have been eager to hear about the fruit of Paul's ministry up north. Sorry. Um, even so, when Paul took his leave and he headed up to Syria... And he left, without any, he left without any sort of recognition or fame. The church didn't even know who he was. The gatherings of believers across the region of Judea didn't know his name. They just knew about this zealous Pharisee who used to persecute Christians, who used to kill Christians, and now he's preaching the faith he tried to annihilate. And they thought that was amazing. It's pretty obvious that while we don't know precisely what led Paul to go down to Jerusalem, it wasn't to make a name for himself in the church. Paul was happy. He was happy to be anonymous because he cared more about the fame of Christ than he cared about his own name to be remembered. He was happily anonymous for the sake of Jesus. Now, when I was going to seminary, it was, it was not uncommon for people, uh, to have people on campus who would be considered maybe in the church as celebrities. The kind of pastors or teachers that get invited to speak at really big conferences in front of thousands of people when you see somebody like that, somebody you've really only seen maybe on YouTube or you've listened to online, it's exciting to see somebody like that walking down a hallway towards you. And it happened one day, on my way to class, one of these well-known pastors was walking down the hall in my direction. And as you can imagine, I got pretty excited. 
But also as I looked his way, I noticed that there was a stampede of interns walking behind him, apparently just trying to get a word in with him. They were all looking at him, and they were, it looked like a syringe coming down the hallway. I mean, it was huge. And um, there were so many of them, I actually got pushed into the brick of the wall as I was trying to get through. And uh, my initial excitement turned into a lot of frustration. I felt myself getting a little angry about it. Who do these guys think they are? Don't they know I'm a student here? That I actually belong here? And that was my own pride talking. But as I steamed off to class, I had some heart-searching to do, and I had some repentance to do, because there was a bit of resentment in me, not just the fact that I got run into a wall, but because I wanted to rub shoulders with guys like that. I wanted him to know who I was. I wanted to be able to say something and him say, that's a good thought. Yeah, I like that. That makes you feel pretty good. Therein, brothers and sisters, lies the danger of pride that comes with wanting to make a name for yourself, even in the church. Pride is a dangerous sin because it is such a subtle sin, because it lurks in the dark recesses of the heart. Pride's corrupting touch is not limited to worldly fame. It can reach into the church. It is so tempting to judge our significance in the body of Christ by what we do or by how people perceive us. There are so many things that the church needs people to do which receive no recognition and which receive no attention. They seem nameless and they are necessary. It is not a glorious thing to serve in the nursery, but it is a necessary thing because it's there that kids learn to love Jesus when they encounter other people besides just their parents that love them. It is a necessary thing to come in this morning and to set up the seats so you guys can sit there. These are thankless jobs. They are necessary jobs. And we may resent those who do it or don't do it if we're not careful to guard our hearts about pride. It is tempting to judge a ministry, even to judge a church itself by the measuring stick of fame, popularity, and recognition. There are some really big churches out there doing some amazing things, and I'm so thankful for them. But a successful ministry is never a matter of whether or not our work is visible to others or whether it is celebrated by them. Work that is pleasing to God, work that will stand in heaven, is done for God by the grace of God for the fame of Christ. Paul was happy to have his name remain anonymous if it meant that the name of Christ was exalted. He was happy for that to happen. And I'm convinced that this is the model of ministry that Grace Baptist Church is called to have. As we think about the vision of who do we want to be as a church, we must adopt the mindset of John the Baptist in John 3. When his own disciples came and complained to him about Jesus' growing popularity, he said, look, they said, look, the guy you baptized, everybody's leaving you and they're going to him. And we're upset about it. And John said to them, you yourselves heard me say, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent by him. And then he said, he must increase but I must decrease. Let that be the banner that flies over this church. All is for Christ. Let Christ increase. Let me be unknown if he is known. Paul found a glory, a glory, a treasure 
in remaining anonymous. Not because he didn't want to be known, but because he wanted Christ to be known, and he didn't want to distract from that. His passion wasn't to build churches that knew who he was. It, was to, it wasn't to gain followers. It wasn't to look attractive or to grow in influence. It was to see Christ increase even at the cost of his own notoriety. When we treasure the glory of Christ above the significance of our own name or above our own position or above our title, we will always be satisfied because Christ will be exalted. And it won't matter if we're a church of five, fifty. 500 or 5,000 because our eyes will be too busy looking at the glory of King Jesus. The bride eyes not her garments, but her own dear bridegroom's face. We will not gaze at glory, but on our King of grace. We rest upon his merit because there is no other stand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Oh, the glory of anonymity. Oh, the glory of being unknown so that Christ may be known. Oh, the glory of being known and knowing the King who knows us. God, give us hearts to believe that and to act on it. So, be happy in anonymity. Finally, be happy in the glory of God. Be happy to glory in God. Paul found glory in being unknown, not because he was a recluse or because he was shy, because we know Paul was not shy, but because When people heard of him, though they didn't know who he was, they didn't know him by name, they knew the glory of his Redeemer. Verse 23, Paul says, They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is perhaps the strongest statement that bears Paul's heart for the church and for the gospel and for Christ. He had been filled with the knowledge of Christ that had caused him to glory in the, the, uh, the expansion of his master's name over his own. And verse 24 really brings this whole argument Paul is making about the authenticity of his, of his message and of his goal as an apostle. It, it brings that in. And I, I, I could not find it. I've read somewhere about the funeral of a well-known, famous pastor. And when the eulogy was delivered to thousands... It was this, be glad, not that you knew this man, but that you knew his God. Mm. Friends, that is what a life well lived looks like. Because it's lived for one enduring purpose, an enduring purpose, the knowledge of the glory of our Savior and of our King Jesus Christ. People spend a lot of money on headstones. I have seen obelisks and statues and things on top of, uh, of graves that I wonder how they're going to be able to get out of the ground when Jesus arises. Those names are forgotten. In two generations. People may not know your name. This is enduring. This is better than a gravestone. Put me in a box and forget about where I am, but remember Christ. Paul was happy to have his name eclipsed because he had such a vision of the excellence of Jesus' name. And that's very instructive for us. I want to finish this morning with just a couple takeaways from from the way Paul was happy to glory in the fame of Christ crucified. First, we must remember that as servants of Christ, we've been called to adopt the priorities of his kingdom as our own. 
Paul may have begun his ministry in obscurity, but his passion for this message meant that he didn't hole up and keep the good news of the gospel to himself. He went, and as he went, he spoke. And as he spoke, God worked through him to bring glory to the name of Christ and to save men and women from Galatia and from all over the Roman Empire. There is a certain temptation to want to keep to ourselves. Uh, Honestly, with all that's going on in the world, I must confess that the prospect of living in a cabin in the woods away from all this mess just keeps looking better and better. We could use Paul's, uh, his example of living in anonymity to try to excuse living quietly in a corner. And while Paul tells Timothy that we ought to pray for all people and for all authorities that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly in every way, we cannot do that while ignoring the great need of proclaiming this message of peace to a lost and dying world. If God means for you to be known for the sake of Christ, be known. If he means for you to be forgotten for the sake of Christ, be forgotten. Faithful servants steward God's good gifts to bring in dividends of grace. That means if God has given you a platform to to reach others broadly, then use that platform not to build up your own reputation, not to be known as a godly person, but to bring attention to the great news of Christ's glory in his work of salvation. If God has given you children... Use that time with them to share your love of Christ with them and to teach them the joy of the gospel. If he has given you a moment with them in the nursery, share with them what Jesus means to you. Let them see the joy that you have found in the glory of Christ. If God has equipped you with a certain skill, use it. Use it well and bring attention to the name of your king. God gives all of us unique callings, gifts, and stations. He does not call us all to posts that involve being well-known. Sometimes we are called to be janitors. And that is a glorious thing if it's done for Christ. It should not trouble us to, be, to know that we've been called to a post that's not well-known. Because our glory is not in the position we hold or in the title we have. or in the, Our glory is in the exaltation of our king. That being said, we must strive to be faithful in the place that God has called us to. And Calvin puts this really well when he says, Every work performed in obedience to one's calling, no matter how ordinary and common, is radiant, most valuable in the eyes of our Lord. When we view ourselves as Paul did, servants of the king, we will not begrudge God for the post he's called us to. Rather, we will glory in knowing that King Jesus is being exalted because we're being faithful where God has called us to be, even in the common things we do, in the breakfasts we make, in the services we do to one another, in the diapers we change, in in the jobs we work. There is no wasted efforts. There are no forgotten actions in the kingdom of God because those things are all aspects of our worship and when, when they're done according to the knowledge of our King. Second, we need to glory in what God is doing in others. Glory in what God is doing in others. It takes a certain amount of selflessness to look at what someone else is doing and to say, I'm so thankful to God about what he's doing in your life. There were moments in our our previous church where, where we would be praying for things. And God would answer our prayers and he would he would give to one and not to another. I watched women mothers pray who who had lost their children through stillbirth 
or through failed whatever, pray for women who had just had their first child. And you see the power of that. It impresses you. Because they could share in each other's joy and bear each other's sorrows because they served one king. And that mattered more to them than having what they wanted. Take time to glory in what God is doing in other people. If God gives something you want to someone else, praise Him for it. When God gives you what you want, share that joy with others. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul made obedience to Christ in the church a matter of his personal joy. He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In my own experience, I have found few things to encourage me more than getting to spend time with God's people hearing about what he's doing in their life. And just to spend time with them praising him for the work he's done and what he's doing, especially as I've been able to do that with each one of you. Spending time with God's people helps the mind and the heart focus on the glory of Christ. And that's what makes Christian fellowship so vitally important to what we do as a church. So get to know other believers with the goal, with the goal, find something in their life that is praiseworthy to Christ. When we value each other, not on the basis of how we serve the church or what we do during the week, when we value each other instead on the basis of what God is doing in us, our hearts will be filled with worship and with gladness. Praise befits the upright, especially when the grace of God is made so evident in his church. When we count each other as more significant than ourselves, and when we make it our goal to see the grace of God in the lives of others, we will find glory in anonymity and will be in a position to better appreciate the way God has worked in our own hearts and lives. There's a glory in anonymity because nothing compares to knowing God and to being known by Him and to sharing that knowledge with others. When we embrace the supreme glory of Christ and are willing to part with our own, we will find true satisfaction in Him. Let's pray.